Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 64. Sending good vibes your way for taking time out of your morning, day, or evening, as the case may be, to click on that little triangle pointing to the right to have a listen to this podcast that thrives on all things cinematic. Whether this is your first time tuning in or your 64th, it's very much appreciated. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Well, as summer winds down and autumn is peeking over the parapet, I'm getting to know my new students little by little. Overall, it seems like things are going to go well, and I say that despite the fact that just a few short days ago, a couple of my freshmen told me how much I look like Jack Black. At first, I was stunned into silence, but then took a different approach and thought to myself, ooh, he's fun. So I did a quick Google image search, looked at him, looked at myself, and you know what? No idea what they see, but maybe it's best to leave it at that. Before I grew my beard out, I had a few students from a while back tell me I look like Bob Hope. So if I look like Jack Black, and if I also look like Bob Hope, then apparently they must look like each other, right? The whole thing is very surreal, like I'm on another planet. And speaking of beings on other planets, in today's episode, we're going to explore what Hollywood in the 1950s thought would be an impactful and fair representation of extraterrestrial life on this blob of blue called planet Earth. To be more specific, we're revisiting 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatches and 1958's The Blob. But if going back to the movies of the 50s has you like, it's okay, relax, relax, just find reassurance through this nugget of wisdom once uttered by actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So here's the breakdown for this episode. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Invasion of the Body Snatches and The Blob. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. So join me as we rewind almost 60 years back to the decade of the 50s. In 1956, Eisenhower was the U.S. president. Elvis Presley had his first hit with Heartbreak Hotel. Rocky Marciano retired as the only undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. The slapstick antics of Lucille Ball and the zaniness of the many characters played by Jackie Gleason in his variety show ruled the television airwaves in the U.S. Switzerland won the first Eurovision Song Contest. The Summer Olympics were held in Melbourne, Australia, while the Winter Olympics were held in Cortina di Ampezzo, Italy. And in the free world, paranoid fears that communism might overtake the world and destroy democracy continued to run deep. Two years earlier, in November and December of 1954, Collier's magazine ran a three-part series that, according to the front cover, was, quote, the year's most original story of suspense, end quote. For a whopping 25 cents, you could read this gripping thriller in three segments. After being sucked in by the cover art, which was of a distraught-looking man holding a seemingly unconscious woman in his arms with the caption, Was this his woman or an alien life form? Written by Jack Finney, The Body Snatches, as it was titled, caught the attention of Hollywood film producer Walter Wanger, who immediately began negotiating the story's movie rights before he had even begun reading part two. Once the film went into production in Sierra Madre, California in March of 1955, which, for the record, is the same city where portions of John Carpenter's Halloween and The Fog were shot. The filming lasted 23 days. To address the elephant in the room right off the bat... (coughs) It's alright, Dumbo, back away, we're talking about you now. The debate that has been raging for decades is, was Invasion of the Body Snatches an indictment of McCarthyism and the Red Scare of the 50s? A strong argument could be made for yes, seeing as how the screenwriter, Daniel Mainwaring, had brushes with Hollywood Red Scare witch hunts, and leading lady Dana Winter believed that it was, though she also said that she did not recall the mention of any political statements on set. 
By contrast, leading man Kevin McCarthy believed the film to be an attack on Madison Avenue attitudes, the elite and the privileged, in other words. As for the director himself, Don Siegel, he joked that the pods represented movie industry executives. Whatever the artistic intent was, there was another problem looming over the production. Deciding on a title. The title of the three-part serial was The Body Snatches, but there was a 1945 RKO film directed by Robert Wise of West Side Story, Sound of Music, and Star Trek The Motion Picture fame called The Body Snatcher Already. It apparently was based on a late 1890s Robert Louis Stevenson short story. In their worldly wisdom, the studio suggested as the film's title, It Came From Another World. Director Don Siegel was there like, nah, and came up with Better Off Dead, which would be a throwback to the Cold War slogan, Better Dead Than Red. Leading man Kevin McCarthy was there like, nah, and suggested Sleep No More, which Shakespearean fans may recognize as what Macbeth says after he kills King Duncan in cold blood. Producer Walter Wanger was there like, nah, and came up with World in Danger, in my opinion, the worst of the lot. The studio looked at this list of possible titles, said, nah, and came up with Invasion of the Body Snatches, much to the chagrin of the director, Don Siegel, who deemed the title, quote, absurd, and went on record as saying that it, quote, cheapened the content of the story. It was released in the U.S. as part of a double bill with a British sci-fi film called The Atomic Man. And after the opening credits finish, flashing on and off the screen against the backdrop of a clearly evil-looking sky, we dissolve into a shot of a police car with a siren blaring, turning a corner and racing down the street. It stops at the ER entrance of a hospital. The authorities step out and rush inside. They're greeted by a one Dr. Bassett, played by Richard Deacon. Okay, I saw him and jumped up and shouted, Hey, that's Melvin from the Dick Van Dyke Show. And indeed it is. Deacon also made a brief appearance in Hitchcock's 1963 film The Birds as a nosy neighbor of Mitch Brennan. Here, he is a doctor who contacted Dr. Hill from the mental hospital. He apologizes to Dr. Hill for dragging him out of bed, but says that he'll soon see why he did. Then, from behind closed doors, you hear the anguished cry of a man, Will you let me go while there's still time? The good doctors open the door, and Miles Bennell, played by Kevin McCarthy, lunges forward from inside the room, reaches out with a determined passion, second only to a Kardashian reaching for the spotlight. Miles begs Dr. Bassett, Make them listen to me before it's too late! Dr. Hill says with reassurance in an attempt to gain his trust, I'll listen to you. Miles looks at him and asks, Who are you? And Dr. Hill introduces himself as from the mental hospital. Predictably, Miles flips his wig and cries out, I'm not insane! You must understand me! I'm a doctor too! I am not insane! And speaking of wigs... That is one fine-looking head of hair that Kevin McCarthy is sporting in this scene, stylishly tussled and appropriately flapping about with every gesticulation. He calms himself down and says, Okay, it started last Thursday. I was on my way home from a medical convention when I got an emergency call from my nurse. Things around me looked normal, but that wasn't the case. Something evil had taken possession of the town. And cue the dramatic flare. <laughs> In a flashback, his nurse Sally greets him at the train station and tells him he's got an office full of patients waiting for him. She says that it's strange, usually people who go see the doctor can't talk enough about what's wrong with them, but in this case, none of them is speaking up, at least not to her. Suddenly on the road in front of them, a small boy named Jimmy Grimaldi, played by Bobby Clark, dots across the street in a panic. 
Miles slams on the brakes, gets out of the car, and begins to run after the boy, who's still running away like a pimp from a cathedral. Miles stops when Jimmy's mother, played by Eileen Stevens, catches up to Miles and says that Jimmy doesn't want to go to school. Okay, I don't know what kind of school he goes to, but that is some serious paranoia. It's like, math test today? No! In voiceover, Miles says, the boy's panic told me that it was more than school he was afraid of. No shit, Sherlock. At his office, Miles greets Becky Driscoll, played by Dana Winter, who's just returned from a trip to England. She's come to see him because she's seriously concerned about her cousin Wilma. Not only does Wilma share a name with the Flintstone, but she's got a delusion that her uncle Ira isn't really her uncle. That he's someone who looks like him, but is an imposter. Becky wants Miles to see Wilma and to talk to her. He agrees, and then we get snippets of dialogue that hints at possible romantic feelings between the two. They had gone to college together, you see, and had a fling in the past, and both have recently divorced. Back at his office, who does Miles get a visit from but Jimmy Grimaldi, whose grandmother brought him in. Jimmy is terrified, saying his mother is not really his mother. This sounds mighty familiar to Miles, who has just told the same thing about Becky's cousin Wilma. Suspicious, but taking things in stride, Miles gives little Jimmy a sedative and tells his grandmother to keep him at her house overnight. But you know what? I think that's enough for this segment if it's to maintain its credibility as spoiler-free. So if you're feeling a little itchy to leap into a quivering, shimmering mass of gelatin, well, then you're in luck. Because extraterrestrial pods be damned, we're now going to slither over to the 1958 ooze fest called The Blob, written by Kay Lenica and Theodore Simonson, and directed by Irvin S. Yeworth Jr., and, uncredited, Russell S. Duthan Jr. Starring Anita Corso and a debuting Steve McQueen, credited here as Steven McQueen, The Blob was released in the U.S. on September 10, 1958, in Brazil one month later on October 17, before going global throughout 1959. This is one of those drive-in era movies that gives you 50s-era cheap thrills of young couples making out in front seats, a rockin' theme tune for your next school sock hop, and enough schlocky jump scares that'll undoubtedly have your date leave bruises all over your arm. The music is composed and conducted by Ralph Carmichael, with Gene Yeworth credited as the music supervisor. Bart Bacharach is uncredited as the composer of the title theme. It's a single verse, repeated three times before the opening credits fade out. Beware of the blob. It creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch. Be careful of the blob. Beware of the blob. Truly inspired. We fade into the titillating vision of the back of the head of Steve Andrews, played by Stephen McQueen, in a moment of fiery passion as he's in a deep lip lock with Jane Martin, played by Anita Corso, in the front seat of his car. Her eyes are closed and his head's tilted to the right as the camera circles around them. She opens her eyes, pulls back, and shakes her head as she whispers, No. Really hot to trot, Steve gently protests, Well, it's a shooting star. She sort of shrugs and gently replies, I thought you were supposed to wish on shooting stars. And he says, I did. She feebly pushes back with, Well, we only saw one. Okay, I'm sorry, but if he needs to back off a little, then we gotta get past this claptrap about how many stars there were for them to wish on. So he continues with, You see a lot of them up here at night. There's a lot of them out at night. You don't see them in town. That's why I come up here. No dummy, she looks at him as if to say, Huh, you play tonsil hockey with girls up here often? And realizing his verbal fumble, he tries to reclaim his home court advantage by saying, Oh no, that's not what I mean. But she says, forlornly, I know what you mean. To which he replies, It's not what you think, Janie girl. 
She turns and faces him, and in an admirably bold move for 1958, she emphasizes that her name is Jane. Just Jane. At that moment, I'm like, good for you, Jane. A little more of this and a little less of the shooting star shit. Which, by the way, she goes on to say is part of his line. Which he denies, almost calling her Janie Girl again, but catching himself. He raises his hand to swear that he's never brought anyone up here before. And I'm there like, stop. You sleazy, lying, smooth-talking son of a bitch, stop. But she says that she believes him, but before they can resume snogging each other, a strange occurrence interrupts. They both see off in the distance this comet-looking vision fly through the sky and land on the ground in an explosion. He turns on the ignition and they drive away from their private passion pit in the woods towards an unknown as yet fate. Cut to the exterior of a cabin with the sounds of a backing dog in the background. An elderly gentleman steps out of the cabin and onto his front porch as he keeps the dog safely inside. He walks through the woods surrounding his property with a kerosene lamp when what to his wondering eyes should appear but a crater on the ground with a small spherical object in the center. It's got mini craters all over it and sort of resembles a perfectly round hornet's nest. He pokes at it with a stick in a moment of unbearable tension, and its outer shell breaks away, revealing what looks like a big olive inside. So he does what any rational human would do in a horror movie situation, and he pokes at the olive with his stick. The stick oozes inside, he pulls it out, and there's this goop dripping down the entire length of the stick. So again, acting on rationality, he holds the stick close to his face, because who wouldn't? He gasps in horror as the ooze leaps off the stick and onto his hand, covering it completely. He drops the stick and begins grunting as the musical cue lets us know that this is bad. Very, very bad. Steve and Jane pull up in his convertible. He stands completely up and says that he could have sworn that it landed right over this hill. In an Einsteinian moment of sheer inspiration, Jane softly offers up the possibility that it's lightning. When it strikes, you think it's nearby, but in reality, it's miles away. He apologizes for taking her all this way, and suggests that he show his sincerity by taking her back to town and buying her a sandwich. She agrees, and they take off. I'm sorry, but if I were in Jane's position, I would be there like, this better be a goddamn good sandwich. Turkey, BLT, no mayo, on grain, side of fries. So they're driving along the road on their way into town, him with his gaze fixed on the road ahead of him, and her looking up at the sky with a smile on her face, like she's taking in the night air. And two things to tickle your funny bone. The car they're in is rocking back and forth to simulate real driving. It's like the stagehands are saying to each other, hey, want a seesaw sensation? Rock this hunk of junk. Well, that's not entirely fair. It's actually a pretty cool car. But the second thing is that there's an insert shot of the guy with his hand still covered in the blob, running desperately across the road in front of them, shaking his hand like some big thrashing machine, as Jane shouts, Steve, watch out! Steve screeches to a halt, they both look behind themselves from the front seat, and he asks, what was that? And she says, it looked like an old man. Okay, that's what I paid for, a dialogue like that from a movie like this. From that moment, I knew this was going to be a fun ride. They get out of the car, find the man within three seconds, the poor guy's moaning, Help me, I need a doctor, I can't get it off. Steve kneels down next to him, saying, Well, here, let me try, maybe I can get it off. And the guy flips his wig, screaming, No, you can't! So Steve changes tactics and calmly says, Okay, we'll get you in the car. Jane helpfully opens the door, they put him in the back seat, Steve gets back behind the wheel and says to Jane, Boy, I hope the doctor's in. Cut to the doctor, Dr. Hallen. He's on the phone with a Mrs. Porter, saying he's leaving now and will be back by tomorrow night, probably late, and asks her to keep her eye on the house while he's gone. Now, I suppose this is the kind of setup where the audience is supposed to scream, No! 
but the blob, don't go. But luckily, Steve and Jane and the groaning man and his blob-covered hand pull up in front of the house, just as Dr. Hallen is walking out. So he turns right back around, and they all go in, to the accompaniment of the moans and grunts of the old man. So they lay him down, tell Dr. Hallen that they picked him up on the road as he was screaming about something on his hand. And in an admirable display of bedside manners, Dr. Hallen turns to the man and says, Take it easy, old-timer. And then it's time for the shocking reveal. The doctor unwraps the jacket that the man has wrapped around his hand. There's another musical cue to tell us to recoil, and we see that the blob has overtaken his whole hand, which is now swollen as hell. Calling the man old-timer once again, the doctor prepares an injection to give him. Okay, I'm sorry, but at first I was there like, what the hell is in that needle? Does Dr. Hallen have some kind of anti-blob remedy, or... But it's knocked the man out. So now the man is totally under, and the doctor turns to Steve and asks him for a solid. He says, do me a favor and drive out to where you found him. Maybe there's somebody around there who knows what happened. It's like, slow down, grasshopper. You're sending a teenager at nighttime on this mission instead of calling the authorities? I mean, Steve's a responsible dude, I'm sure, probably, but maybe a chaperone might be a good idea. Especially if he gets distracted and starts counting shooting stars with Jane again. So Steve and Jane begin to head out, but then Dr. Hallen stops them. And it looks for a second like light has dawned on his marble head and he has a new plan. But no, all he says is, turn out the outside light on your way out. I don't want to be disturbed. You can ask him to pick up his dry cleaning while he's at it. Once outside, Steve and Jane encounter three other teenagers. These guys are a little honked off that Steve was driving so fast and broke their record of some such nonsense. They challenge him to a drag race to try to reclaim their former glory. And here's where I have to hit the pause button again, because these five supposed teens, Steve and Jane and these three new guys, they're the least convincing group of actors playing minors that I ever did enjoy. And I've seen Dear Evan Hansen in Greece. Well, Greece probably still holds the trophy, but this one comes a close second. Apparently, Steve McQueen was 28 years old at the time of this production. Steve has bigger fish to fry than a drag race, so he drives backwards at top speed to remove himself from the situation, which captures the attention of a cop sitting in his patrol car down the street. Okay, Dr. Howland, the cop is right there. Steve may be younger, but the cop's the one packing the heat, so let's try to use our head, okay? The cop pulls up to Steve's car and gets out, walks slowly and intimidatingly over to him and says, All right, what's this all about? Rather than telling the cop what's what, Steve decides to go all James Dean on his ass, refers to the cop by his first name, laughs in his face. Jane's no better, sitting there and smirking. The cop lets them off with a warning, saying, No more horseplay, get out of here. Steve and Jane drive off. They meet up again with their three friends, and they all laugh and share a couple of stories about some shenanigans from the night before. Hey, Steve and Jane, there's an old man conked out, lying on his back with his hand covered in extraterrestrial goop back at the doctor's. But not to worry, Steve suddenly remembers, telling his friends, Hey, I almost forgot. I gotta do something for the doc. Really, Superman? But he invites the three friends to join them, and off they go. Meanwhile, back at Dr. Howland's, he checks in on the old-timer, whose arm is now completely taken up by this red mass of gelatin, a visual we get with yet another musical cue to guide us in our emotional reaction to the horror. Dr. Howland goes over to the phone, calls another doctor, who's not in, then, after seeing some motion under the blanket that he has thrown onto the old-timer, he gets more nervous and calls his nurse Kate, asks her to come back to the office, referring to a parasite that's assimilating the old-timer's flesh at an alarming speed. And Steve, Jane, and their three friends are at the hole in the ground where the comma had landed. They see the old-timer's lantern, marvel at the mystery of it all, and Steve picks up a rock, sniffs it, feels how hot it is, and then he and the three guys start this game of Wonderball with it, tossing it to each other and telling each other to check it out. They hear the sounds of a barking dog, turn around, see the old-timer's cabin, go up to the front door, and look inside. 
Steve says, there's no one in there but the little dog. So Jane goes all Paw Patrol and says, oh, Steve, open the door and let him out. Steve agrees, and out comes the petrified pooch. Judy picks it up and says, I guess it's the old man's dog. Everyone figures they've seen all there is to see. It was probably just a meteor. This house must be the old man's, the dog must be his, and the least they can do for him is to bring the dog with them so that it wouldn't starve to death. I think those are all some pretty hasty conclusions, that this must be the old-timer's home and his dog and no one else lives there, so the dog's up for grabs, but it moves the story along. Cut to Nurse Kate and Dr. Hallen greeting each other. She asks him what he needs, and he tells her to take the old man's pulse, but not to touch his hand. That ooze absorbs flesh on contact like an acid. She goes to see the old man, but looks quizzical as she calls Dr. Hallen over to say, Where is he? They both look down to their right at the same time, and yet another musical cue tells us to jump in shock at the sight of the blob, now bigger and presumably having made a late snack of the old man. And the doctor deadpans, It must have absorbed the old man completely. I don't know what this is, but it's got to be killed before it gets any bigger. Kate responds, Doctor, I'm afraid. And he just says, Try to stay as far away from it as you can. He tells her to go over to the shelf and grab a conveniently located glass container of trichloracetic acid to throw on the blob, firmly telling her, and for heaven's sake, don't get any of it on your hands. Alas, it doesn't work, so his next go-to solution is to grab his gun. In a remarkable display of intelligence, he leaves Kate alone with the blob and he is off to fetch his gun. He returns, fires a couple of shots, but to no avail. And Kate's nurse's cap is on the ground, just lying there. So the blob is living its best life noshing on this poor woman. And let's leave poor Kate to her blob-filled fate as we roll and ooze our way over to the behind-the-scenes fun facts for both of today's movies. As always, I want to play fair and remind you that in this segment there may be spoilers, so proceed with the knowledge that there'll be references to different points in the films, potentially including the endings. So spoiler alert now. Let's start first with Invasion of the Body Snatches. Number 5. Originally, the film was envisioned as a horror comedy. Director Don Siegel recalled, quote, I felt that pods growing into a likeness of a person would strike the characters as preposterous. I wanted to play it that way, with the characters not taking the threat seriously. End quote. He filmed some comedic scenes, but the studio, allied artists, were well, not so allied, seeing as how they cut those scenes from the final edit. Siegel said of the studio, quote, In their hollowed words, horror films are horror films, and there's no room for humor. I translated this to mean that in their pod brains there was no room for humor. End quote. Number four. Full-body molds of the lead actors were made, including Kevin McCarthy, Dana Winter, King Donovan, and future Adams Family sitcom star Carolyn Jones. The fourth espions were laid down on slanted boards, where the crew covered them from head to toe with plaster of Paris. Then the molds were filled with foam rubber. During the undoubtedly claustrophobic process, Dana Winter was subjected to a practical joke. She said, quote, I was in this thing while it hadn't. I was breathing through straws, and the rest of me was encased. It was like a sarcophagus. The guys who were making it tapped on the back of the thing and said, Dana, listen, we won't be long, we're just going out for lunch. End quote. Number three. Walter Wanger was really hoping to have Orson Welles narrate the opening and closing scenes for the film. Welles would have said at the film's conclusion, In this day and age, anything can happen. And if you're asleep when it does, you're next. Welles was unavailable due to scheduling conflicts, 
So Wanger considered having legendary sci-fi author Ray Bradbury provide this happy little pick-me-up. In the end, though, the idea was scrapped. And in other casting could have been related news, Gig Young, Dick Powell, Joseph Cotton, and Richard Kiley were all considered for the role of Dr. Miles Bennell. While names like Anne Bancroft, Donna Reed, Kim Hunter, and Vera Miles were tossed around for the role of Becky Driscoll. But when the studio cut the budget from 450000 to 350000 they ended up instead going with a relatively unknown cast of actors. Number 2. The story involves Kevin McCarthy's character to be constantly running over every possible kind of ground there is. Pavement, hard soil, up canyon hills, you name it. McCarthy would admit, quote, I had no wheels, I was on the move, I ended up with Charlie horses, end quote. Just before the film ends, he runs through highway traffic having gone totally apeshit, screaming, They're here already! You're next! You're next! Since McCarthy hadn't been sleeping well during the film's shoot, Siegel told his stunt drivers to be alert in case McCarthy tripped or fell. Siegel admitted, quote, I was terrified that his timing would be off and he might fall down under the wheel of the cars and trucks. That sequence was shot not on the actual Hollywood freeway, but on a little-used crossbridge, and at one point, that was going to be where the film ends with a pull-away shot of him screaming. And number one. To add to what was just said about the pull-away shot of Dr. Bennell screaming, the studio insisted on a different ending. Wanting to end the film on a more hopeful note, Allied Artists came up with the idea of bringing us back to the film's opening, where Dr. Bennell is at the police station, having just finished telling a story. The authorities believe him and spring into action, as he slumps back against the wall in relief. And speaking of relief, don't worry folks, that mask from the 1958 movie The Blob, it wasn't real. So let's slither on over to The Blob to find out how it came to life on screen. Number 5. The Blob itself was a mixture of silicone and red vegetable dye. As it claims more hapless victims, it grows bigger and bigger as it threatens the whole town. So to achieve this effect, the silicone was sent oozing over miniature sets. And when the Blob expands and contracts like it's breathing, the special effects folks smear the silicone over a weather balloon. Number 4. That Burt Bacharach theme song actually made it into the Billboard Top 40. The title of it is Beware of the Blob, and it managed to climb up to number 33. Bacharach has had a highly decorated career with Oscars and Grammys, and his partner on the Blob, Mac David, wrote lyrics for Disney's Cinderella. Number 3. Steve McQueen, again credited here as Steven McQueen, was not quite yet a bankable name. This was his first leading role, and he had a choice. Either take a $3,000 salary up front, or hold off and get 10% of the film's gross profits. Right away, he took the $3,000. McQueen was in kind of a financial hole at the time. He didn't think the blob would amount to very much. But within a month of its release, the blob had earned a million and a half dollars, and eventually grossed $12 million domestically. The producers originally signed him to a three-film deal with this being the first, but he proved difficult to work with, so much so, he was released from his contract for the other two films. Number 2. Get this. Producer Jack H. Harris pitched the film to the production company Valage Forge Films, based in Pennsylvania. They had released hundreds of well-received Christian movies. But according to Harris, quote, their basic mission was to promulgate the word, with a capital W. They were doing that pretty well, but starving to death at the same time. I convinced them that we could take what facilities they had, 
and come up with films that a lot of people would come and see. And if they did it right, we'd do it again. And the more notice they got, the more word with a capital W they'd be able to transmit. End quote. And number one. Nah, sit down for this one. The Blob is based on a supposedly true story. Say what? On September 27, 1950, the Philadelphia Inquirer ran an article with the headline, Flying Saucer Just Dissolves. The night before, police officers John Collins and Joe Keenan claimed to have seen a mysterious object fall from the sky. Rushing towards the landing site, they came upon a purple jelly-like mass. Collins and Keenan immediately got a hold of their colleagues, who arrived just in time for everyone to see the mass completely evaporate. They got in touch with the FBI, a press conference was held, and the whole mess became a national laughingstock. Then, seven years later, in 1957, producer Jack H. Harris was looking to make a creature feature, but he couldn't come up with a concept that he liked. So he asked his friend Irvine H. Milgate to try and devise one, telling him, quote, it's got to be a monster movie. It's got to be in color instead of black and white. It can't be a cheapy creepy. It's got to have some substance to it. It's got to have characters you can believe in. And there's got to be a unique monster. Never been done before. And the method of killing the monster would have to be something that Grandma could have cooked up on her stove. End quote. Millgate remembered the incident in Philly, and the blob was born. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 64, asked you, would you rather face an alien pod about to hatch, a la Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or Hungry Alien Jello, a la The Blob? From the Facebook group Silver Screeners, 77% of the votes went to facing the pod as the danger of choice with the remaining 23% going to the movie theater invading gelatin. And over on Twitter, Hugh B. commented, Ooh, tough call. But the upshot is that two-thirds of the votes went to the Jello, with the remaining third going to the pods. So, doing the math, it looks like the pods emerge as the front-runner for the label of not as threatening. More votes to face off against them than the blob. Sorry, Jello, you gotta take a seat, but you still have that cool jingle from the days of radio. Big thanks to all voters. These polls are silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode. Thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMandosa1974. Or you can simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to dive into the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that's directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. You're all invited to take part in it at any time. Please know that I like to err on the side of caution, so I don't announce both first and last names in case that would make anyone uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise when you send in your answer, full names it is. You'll get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And don't you worry a thing about timing either. Doesn't matter what episode you're listening to, however far back or however recent. Answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You'll get your meme and your shout-out. 
And if you're a creator of anything from music to podcasts to websites to YouTube series to extraterrestrial jello molds, I'm always happy to give you a no-strings-attached plug. People help people, and that's all there is to it. So last time, we looked at two vacation-themed 80s comedies as a way of bidding the summer a fond adieu, 1983's National Lampoon's Vacation and 1988's The Great Outdoors. And the question was, name the 1987 comedy celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, starring John Candy of The Great Outdoors. The title has in it three modes of transportation. And the answer is, planes, trains, and automobiles. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to the following, in no particular order. From England, the irreplaceable Stu from the Stu and Al pod, the very first podcasting friend I made almost two years ago. He and Al were on Silver Screeners almost one year ago for an episode looking at our favorite films of the Cohen brothers. So go back and listen to episode 32 if you haven't heard that one yet. I've had the honor of guesting on their show as well to talk about our top Spielberg films. They're a blast. And I'll always be grateful to them both for introducing me to the British comedy series, Father Ted. We have another collaboration in the pipeline as well, so stay tuned. Speaking of England, there is another podcaster and friend in this episode's list, and that is the man, the myth, the legend, Dave, otherwise known as Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That Ten Minutes. He just launched his fourth season of that show, and he's the very same who's my co-host on a joint project we're doing, another movie podcast called Movies Across the Pod. We're seven or eight episodes in, and we're having the time of our lives. And speaking of legends, back over here in the U.S., I get to announce once again the name of the great Mary C., a longtime regular listener and trivia player. And she added that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of her favorites. So Mary, you may be happy to hear that there's an episode being planned for that one. Thank you, as always. And there's my buddy Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho. He's been on a couple of times, too, to talk about The Departed, back in episode 42, and, what else? Psycho, the Hitchcock classic, in episode 51. We also have a future collaboration in the works, which is frickin' fantastic. And speaking of frickin' fantastic, the one and only Liz M., my sister-in-law who kicks ass eight ways from Sunday. She and my brother-in-law Greg were on for episode 48, where we talked about both versions of Dune. There's a new listener who answered the trivia on Instagram, Rick Reno 88. Rick, thank you for taking part, and I hope you're enjoying the show. And there's the great DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Podcast, another former and future guest on this show. He and his co-hosts Zan and Rachel make their way one episode at a time through each of the Best Picture winners ever since the inception of the Oscars. They just released their latest, where they talk about 1986's Platoon. They were on Silver Screeners to talk about the Jurassic Park franchise in episode 61, and I guessed it on their show for 1978's The Deer Hunter. DJ Nick also had me on one of his other podcasts, Happiness in Darkness, the superhero podcast, for a discussion about 1951's Superman and the Mole Men, which was a great time. He's in Italy and mentioned that the Italian title of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is a ticket for two. I didn't know that, and that's exactly the kind of thing that I love to find out about, so many thanks, Nick. And many thanks to all of you. You're all sincerely appreciated. I love listening to all your shows. And if you don't have one, I love that you keep this trivia segment alive and well. And hopefully you keep enjoying this podcast. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else kind enough to be listening, please don't hesitate to join in. you got nothing to lose and a shout-out and a cool meme to gain. And go ahead and begin with this episode's question. I mean, what the hell? Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about people having their will overtaken by sinister forces with an evil agenda. 
In the mid-1970s, the thrower, the Stepford Wives, put a feminist spin on a similar premise. But name the 2017 film, written and directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya, that puts a fresh spin on this idea again through an exploration of racism in 21st century America. Peele would win the Best Original Screenplay Academy Award for this film, he was also nominated for directing, and Daniel Kaluuya got a Best Leading Actor nod. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the Film Group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 64 to a close. As I say at the conclusion of every episode, thank you once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating, whether on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the show's visibility on these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good autumn weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the blob making its way from that air-conditioned colonial theater towards Dr. Miles Bennell's hometown of Santa Mira and his despondency as a result of this additional threat of gelatin to go along with that of the extraterrestrial pods.